morning. It's in Mark chapter 16 and verses 1 through 8 as we now approach the the conclusion of uh, the Gospel of Mark. This morning, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, let us hear and attend to the Word of God. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun uh, had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone for the door of the, uh, from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed, for you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. The story pattern innate to the human conscience does not end with the climax of a story. The climax of a story being the high point of action or the high point of psychological tension. And the reason that a story, and and this is innate in the human conscience, the, the reason that the story doesn't end with the climax is because the human conscience craves resolution. This is the disquieted longing in the human condition. It's universally acknowledged, it's variously identified, and it's often exploited. Now for this reason, the resurrection is not the climax of the gospel story. You might be thinking, well, wouldn't the the resurrection be the climax? Isn't that the high point? It's not the high point of the action or the psychological tension. That tension was brought out by the the, uh, crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus brings the reader of Mark's gospel to the high point of the action and the psychological tension. What's going to happen? What happened to Jesus? We had hopes in Jesus. Now he's been crucified in such a violent and disturbing manner. And maybe from the previous reading in the Gospel of Mark to remember, uh, he said about resurrection, what's happening? What comes next? What's going on? That's the high point of psychological tension. But Mark's Gospel is more than a human story. I hope you know that. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is also about more than resolving psychological tension. As I'm talking to you about this, I'm talking about how the gospel of Mark is developed and how it connects with us in terms of a story. But it's more than a human story. And so I'm not just offering you a happy ending to you know resolve the, the disturbed sense of you know, how Jesus was treated. We look at this as more than a human story because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is about more than resolving psychological psychological tensions. So what is chapter 16? What is the theme? We've tried to find a a theme that is represented from the teaching of each chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and of course it's interrelated. But coming to chapter 16, we come to the resolution of the Gospel paradox. 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with power over sin and death. This is the resolution that we're talking about. It's the resolution that has been introduced from the very beginning of Mark's gospel. And that is the gospel paradox, because as more than a human story, Mark's giving straight talk about Jesus Christ is driven by revealing the gospel paradox, which is the way of the cross. The gospel paradox is the way of the cross. The world doesn't get it. It's not just something that can be intellectually solved. The way of the cross presents to us a seeming contradiction. That is, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For he who saves his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for Jesus' sake and the gospels will save it. The gospel paradox is the way of the cross. In verses 1 and 2, as we come to chapter 16 this morning, the occurrence of Jesus' resurrection on the first day of the week marks the Sabbath's transition and ratification from Old Covenant to New Covenant. This is hugely important. When the Sabbath is passed on the first day of the week, they go to the tomb early in the morning after the sun has risen. And what do they find there? They find the tomb empty and they find an angelic messenger. He says, he is not here, he is risen. And this is very, very important to us. It's, it's uh, pointed out and established and documented uh, elsewhere repeatedly in Scripture. The theological significance of the Sabbath is found in the essence of soul rest, resolution to our souls. That disquieted longing being satisfied through reconciliation. So the true essence of the Sabbath is found in soul rest and soul peace with God by the ministry of reconciliation perfected through the new covenant Christian gospel. He is not here. He is risen. And he's risen for your justification. He's risen to satisfy all the demands of God's holiness in which you failed, in which you are guilty. He removes the wrath of God as Elder uh, Lynn prayed the propitiation from the grace of God in the scriptures he quoted in his prayer. God's wrath has been removed from us. We are reconciled and at peace with God by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... We're not to be slavishly controlled by the day of the week, overburdened with man-made rules and superstitions. Do you remember that Jesus, in the opening of his public ministry, was targeted for this issue of the Sabbath? Because he did good on the Sabbath, honoring God, but he broke the traditions of man-made burdens and slavish fear. He said the Sabbath is a gift to man. Man was not made to be a slave of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a divine gift to man. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day of the week, we have the transition to the new covenant and to the promised rest that is better than the old covenant could present because of the reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation that is founded on the resolution that Jesus rose from the dead and satisfied God the Father that our sins may be wiped away and our guilt may be removed. That brings us then to verses 3 through 6. The opening of the tomb and witnessed by a powerful angelic uh, being was a heavenly supernatural visitation validating Jesus' bodily resurrection as an object lesson of the empty tomb. So, 
the women come early in the morning after the sun has risen, and they come and they're uh, quizzical. They're, they're saying to one another, what are we going to do when we get there? How are we going to remove that stone? It's huge. No, no humans can move it. We, we, we women certainly can't move it. But when they get there, they find the tomb is open. The stone is rolled away. And there's a powerful, I want to emphasize that, a powerful angelic being who is a heavenly supernatural visitor. And he validates Jesus' bodily resurrection. The stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let the women see and other witnesses see. He is not here. He is risen. The bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, an object lesson to us in the empty tomb. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus' body? Where are his bones? Where are his remains? Oh, the world has tried in every way to discredit and to trump up and to some way prove that Jesus was just a man and his remains were uh, settled into the dust of death. But they were not. He is not here. <laughs> he is risen. Where is he? Jesus says, I'm here. And we know in other accounts, he calls his friends by name. He reveals himself to them. And so here, the women receive this uh, word from the angel, this terrifying, terrible uh, presence of a powerful spirit being, not there to threaten them, but nonetheless awe-inspiring in his presence. So the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the open tomb are supernatural acts. Hear that again. The bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the open tomb are supernatural acts. Jesus rose from the dead uh, not by the power of human ability, not by fainting or being somehow in a coma. Jesus died. And he rose from the dead by the power of the Father, by divine power. He was raised for our justification. He was raised as proof of God the Father's accepting his sacrifice. He was raised by his own uncorrupted power as the Son of God. It was a supernatural act, Jesus' bodily resurrection. And the rolling away of the stone was a supernatural act by a supernatural being. The angels rolled away the stone. And all of this attests for us that the empty tomb is an object lesson. So the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the open tomb are supernatural acts. Believing and confessing these things, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and the empty tomb, believing and acknowledging and confessing these things are marks of saving faith. This is what the Holy Apostle writes. That if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is raised from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe it in your heart, confess it with your mouth. These are marks of true saving faith. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and my sins are forgiven. Going on in verse uh, 7, the angel speaks to the women. The oracle of the angel singles out Peter in connection with Jesus' coming appearance to the disciples at Galilee. Now, I want you to note something here. There are detractors who, and we're going to get to this next week in verses 9 through 20, that uh, suggest that the, some of these verses are not authentic. 
or that some of this doesn't really belong, or that was later added, and a variety of different things. But one of the things they point out is that, well, here Peter is singled out, and, and, and Jesus appeared to others, and Jesus appeared in other places before he went to Galilee. So this is obviously a contradiction. This is obviously doesn't uh, match up with the other passages of Scripture. And that's just foolish. I'm sad that people listen to such foolishness and don't really look at the Scriptures themselves. But here's something I want you to consider. The fact that the angels tells the women here to go before and to tell the disciples and to single out Peter specifically, and that Jesus is going to appear to them in Galilee... This does not exclude Jesus' appearances in Jerusalem or elsewhere. In verses 9 through 13, uh, the, the, the conclusion of Mark goes on to talk about his appearances elsewhere. So here, Peter is being emphasized. Remember, Peter is widely accepted as Mark's main original source, first-hand account of the life and the ministry of Jesus and as an apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what he taught, what he revealed to Mark, what Mark wrote down, we accept this from the Holy Spirit, validated by God. The true record that God wants us to have as written through Mark from hearing Peter. So Jesus' post-resurrection meeting with Peter, the fact that it's singled out here, that Mark is getting his main information from Peter, and the record from the women who were there says that the angel told us specifically to go and find the disciples and to tell them and to tell Peter specifically that Jesus is going to meet you in Galilee. That doesn't exclude any of his other meeting with them. It brings focus to what was most important to Peter. You remember, don't you? Jesus' post-resurrection meeting with Peter and the disciples on the shore of Galilee. You remember the most famous story of Peter's restoration? Walking on the shore with Jesus? And Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Three times. And he commissions Peter, feed my lambs. He restores Peter. What do you think Peter was going to focus on? What do you think was most important to Peter in recounting the resurrection appearances of Jesus? Yes, he appeared other places. Yes, Peter was witness to his appearing in the upper room. But what was uppermost in Peter's heart and mind? Jesus restored me by his mercy and grace. That's what I remember the most. Stupid people that say the Bible contradicts or doesn't match. It's because they have no heart for the gospel. So, the most personal resolution. Remember what we said about the climax is not the resolution? <laughs> we crave resolution. And the gospel of Mark is giving us resolution here. What is the most personal resolution of the gospel paradox. Saving faith. Peter said, you know, Lord, I love you. Human attempts to discredit the Christian Bible are confronted with the trustworthiness of the Holy Scriptures, revealing an internal consistency confirmed by the message of the New Covenant Christian Gospel. This is why we talk about Jesus being the key to understanding the Scriptures. It's Jesus as he embodies, as he is the source, and he is, as he is the meaning for the new covenant Christian gospel. And that's why Jesus Christ is the key to our understanding of the Word of God. That brings us into verse 8 where we're going to conclude this morning. 
These Christian women's overcautiousness should not be misrepresented as unbelief as the balance of verses 9 through 20 focuses on this theme, this theme of don't be unbelieving because Jesus shames unbelief. So I want to give you some examples here. All right, These women leave, they're subdued, they're overwhelmed, they're awestruck. I mean, if you go back and just read the few comments here, who wouldn't be? But then I want you to see that this point about not misrepresenting these women in their quietness, in their contemplation, in their stunned bewilderment and, and even awe-struck fear of the supernatural things they have witnessed as acts of God. Don't misunderstand that as unbelief. And, and look at... These verses in verses 9 and following where the very focus is on don't be unbelieving. Look at verse 11. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. So she went and told them as the angel commanded, but they didn't believe. All right? Uh, look at verse 13. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. All right, you're getting the picture of the theme here? Look at verse 14. After he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And then if you'll look also at uh, verses 16 and 17, this is what Jesus says. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. So you can see that the questioning and the um, dishonest attempt to say that verse 8 doesn't represent what we read elsewhere in Scripture about the women's response is false and fallacious. Verse 8 simply adds another dimension to what the other scriptures tell us about the experience of these women who went and found the empty tomb, who were confronted uh, with uh, an angelic being and who were startled. And yet, and nowhere are we told they were unbelieving. So, the theological thematic connection in the conclusion of Mark's gospel is very important to observe especially considering the dispute over verses 9 through 20. I don't know if you're familiar and know that there is a dispute about verses 9 through 20. Many of your Bibles probably have this section double bracketed. And that, that is a kind of a compromise that was reached because people who are in that field struggle with what to do with verses 9 through 20. Uh, and so it's like, well, we don't think Mark wrote it. But we think it's scriptural, so we're going to put it in there and put a couple of, uh, of brackets around it. That's just so unfortunate. I am glad to tell you that there have been qualified, credentialed scholars from the time, earliest times, which I'll talk about next week, up until current times, that have defended verses 9 through 20 and have exploded the naysayers and the attempts to discredit and to bring a question, verses 9 through 20, as belonging in the Gospel of Mark. 
And I do want to spend some time uh, next week addressing that, preaching through these scriptures, verses 9 through 20, and hopefully assuring you and confirming your conscience that this is indeed the authentic Word of God, verses 9 through 20. Uh, I'll be presenting it to you as an apostolic epilogue, and I'll explain what that means, and I'll offer you biblical comparisons and, and, and biblical interpretation to the things that are said here that should not in any way leave us troubled that, that somehow verses 9 through 20 don't represent what the rest of the Bible teaches. It is consistent. We have every, every confidence, and we have good, qualified scholars who have confronted those naysayers who have said, well, this is some kind of add-on. No, it's not. It is the authentic Word of God. So this is what I want you to consider by conclusion this morning in verse 8. That verse 8 describes these faithful Christian women. And think about this at the time Mark was writing. We pointed out uh, before of how the Christian gospel brings uh, the focus upon uh, women as followers and believers in Jesus in in a wonderful light out of the darkness of the surrounding culture and society of the Roman times or in our own times. And so these faithful Christian women who loved the Lord Jesus and followed him, who were Christian women who found their identity in Jesus, who had been raised in Judaism but had made that transition to say, no, Jesus is the Messiah. They were no longer Jews. They were Christians. Judaism is a religion, a way of worshiping. Christianity is a way of worshiping. It's not a nationality. It's not an ethnicity. These are Christian women who come to the tomb to find their Savior. And they're confirmed in their faith that He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. He is Jesus the Savior. They're honored in the text for their compassion and courage. They came early to the tomb. And then leaving the empty tomb having been astounded by the angelic being messenger, he told them, he is not here, he is risen. Having been amazed that the stone was rolled away, having seen the empty tomb and his grave clothes laid aside, these Christian women leave the empty tomb at the commissioning of the heavenly angel Subdued in their awe, with their emotions captured in the moment by godly fear. So their demeanor was not like a cheering parade on their return. That makes so much sense to me. I just wish I would have had the courage to be with them. And so when they leave the tomb, they leave speechless, awe-inspired, Overcome with fear of the presence of God and even his angelic messenger. So to me, that's the most real kind of response in the human condition. They didn't throw a parade. They left there subdued in wonder and love and hope. One of the distinguishing features of the Christian Bible and especially the revealing of the New Covenant Christian gospel, is the authentic way the human condition is presented and the faith resolution offered for peace with God. 
You see, what I see in verse 8 and in this whole context is real Christian people like you and me. And the Bible doesn't present them as superheroes, like even in our own time. Hollywood's going crazy and they found a cash cow. Superheroes, superheroes. Or in the past, flawed uh, demigods, flawed mythological gods. But no, how does the Bible present to us those who believe God and His Word, who serve Him and who follow Him, and those who in time come to confess Jesus as their Savior, as the Son of God? It presents God as perfect, humans as fallen. (laughs) And yet redeemed humans, reconciled to God. And so it's not like Hollywood. It's not like the foolish entertainment celebrity culture. These women are not presented to us as celebrities. They're presented to us as genuine believers, as true humans, like you and like me. And that's how the Bible presents the human condition and what the human condition needs, the resolution that comes by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The resolution that is through reconciliation with God. The resolution that is is represented in Sabbath soul peace with God. And that resolution comes through Jesus, the Savior. So the resolution to the gospel paradox by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and, and the power over sin and death is a faith resolution. And in preaching the gospel of Mark, I hope that has been uppermost. The faith resolution to the gospel paradox. Believe and be saved. Confess with your mouth. Lose your life for Jesus' sake and the gospels. And find it. So Mark wrote this gospel account expressing a mood of urgency. Again, we've pointed that out through the grammar of the text as we've gone through. Mark wrote this gospel expressing a mood of urgency cultivated by straight talk about Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus Christ is. The New Covenant Christian gospel is sourced in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came preaching, if you go back to the opening chapter of Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Straight talk about who Jesus Christ is. I do look forward next week to going on in verses 9 through 20. I want you to have a strong consolation and good hope that you don't need to be dissuaded by the naysayers and the academics who try to tell us that somehow verses 9 through 20 are suspect. That we can look into the scriptures and we can find a good answers and expected um, uh, truthfulness and trustworthiness from God that this is authentically the word of God. Our concluding hymn.